DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We are now entering into the fifth point, which contains five essential principles that are really, it's imperative that every Catholic in a mature adult formative way, understand, live it out in the world. Exactly. And uh, if you've noticed thus far, we've had in those five points, you know, the first point's one, there's just one thing to keep track of, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two, there are two things, you know, communion versus opposition. Three, look, judge, act, three things. Four, the four values. And five, the five principles. And those five principles are the common good, the universal destination of goods, subsidiarity, participation, and solidarity. The common good. What exactly does that entail? (laughs) That's the big question because Mm -hmm. it's so confusing. You know, it's interesting, actually, in the Second Vatican Council on the Declaration of Religious Liberty, which is one of the social doctrine documents of the Church, Dignitatis Humanae is the Latin title, and it's the Declaration of Religious Liberty. One of the last things that the Council did, and it was one of the most controversial things the Council did. And one of the issues that was controversial about it was that in the entire document, in the 16 pages, not once did they mention the phrase common good. And in mm-hmm. fact, they specifically avoided using the phrase common good precisely because it's so confusing. Bishop Emile de Schmet, who is the, the uh, sort of the, the bishop who's in charge of, of guiding the, the drafts and, and the, the drafting of the document, uh, he says quite clearly, he said, we avoided using the phrase common good because it can be twisted to mean any number of various things. And um, this approach by the Council Fathers to avoid using common good was in part because of the uh, interjection or, or uh, the, the, the efforts of Kara Wojtyla and several other Eastern Bloc bishops who said, look, uh, you can use common good all you want, but in the East, they're using common good, the Soviets and the Nazis before them, they're using the common good to justify all sorts of horrors against the human person. You know, it was for the common good that the Nazis felt, you know, we need to get rid of the Jews or, or imprison or, or simply eliminate those who were handicapped in our societies. The Soviet regime used the common good to say in Poland, you may not have private unions of workers, it has to be run by the state. So the common good can be twisted to mean any number of various things, which is why they avoided it. But it speaks to why the values have to come first. When you look at the phrase common good, common uh, is obvious meaning, and we, we can talk about that in a second. But when you talk about good, let's not just jump over that as though everybody understands what, what's good or what good is, or that there even can be a good. 
in this relativistic world we live in, mm-hmm. uh, where truth is left off the side, which affects therefore how we view freedom and, and then authentic justice and ultimately love, if truth means nothing, then the good can be twisted into be whatever it is we want it to be. What's authentically good, what's truly good, has to be rooted in the, the, the truth of the human person. And so as a result, therefore, the common good can't be something that we just sort of assume everybody understands. It has to be rooted in authentic understanding of the truth of the human person, what authentic freedom is, real justice, all of it tempered and driven by love. What we would consider a good in the United States then would be something that it may totally be out of place for a society, say, rooted in that Eastern European mentality or an African experience culturally. It, it is something that if we base it on our own secular cultural understanding, we would be in big trouble. We'd be in huge trouble if the, if the good can be simply limited to let's say, historicism. What was good for the medievals is not good for us now because human nature changed and people change. Well, no, human nature is static. Human nature is what it is. God created us in a certain way, and so that's going to be good. And in the medieval times, it's going to be good for us now. But there are cultural aspects of what's good as well. So the way the good is, is lived out in a particular society, in Western culture, for instance, may not, in fact, be what's good for an African nation or, or for a European nation or a South American nation. But those are the sort of the, the, the minor cultural things. Uh, the important point to note is that the truth is the truth, and we can grasp it. We can know it. Uh, even prescinding from the doctrines of the Catholic Church and the guidance of, of, uh, of the Pope, we can know what's truly human. We can know the natural law and apply that, therefore, to the common good. So then there comes the problem, okay, well, what is the common good practically? Let's get mm-hmm. at it. Let's talk first about what it isn't. It isn't what the majority wants. That's the sort of the, the problem with Western democracy and that notion of Western democracy is the problem that the, the Greeks understood, Aristotle and Plato and, 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 and the Latins, Cicero and Seneca. That's the problem they understood. It's not what the majority wants. To help us grasp this more clearly, mm-hmm. the founding documents for the United States it, it does contain the phrase, the general welfare. Exactly. That, in essence, is the common good. Right, and that's precisely because the founders of this country were working off that tradition of the West, that natural law tradition of the West that they inherited from the Greeks and the Latins that appeals to the common good. And that's one of the reasons why we have a Republican democracy and not a, a straight-up, up-down de- democracy where everybody votes on everything all the time, that we have representatives that we elect whose job it is to know the larger issues and know them well so that they can make wiser decisions, decisions sometimes that might go against their constituents, decisions that the people may not themselves want, precisely because sometimes what the people, what the majority wants is bad for humanity or bad for society. You take a perfect example would be something like slavery. You, know, you look at the South, or if they had put up a referendum, you know, it could very well have been the majority of Americans would have said, yes, let's keep slavery, or let's keep slavery in certain situations, or only in extreme situations should we have slavery. It took the, the, the will of a president and other leaders to come forward and say, no, this is fundamentally wrong. This is a violation of the natural law. And so as a result, therefore, regardless of what the majority may want, it simply must end. That benefits the moral standards, the moral development 
of the common good. Precisely right. Yeah, and that's good that you bring that up because the common good is not just the material needs or wants and desires of the people. The common good has to take into into account not just the material but also the spiritual or moral aspects of human development. And that's why the church will argue that systems like socialism, uh, which at the very heart of socialism, again, this is why the Holy Fathers have time and time and again said that socialism is is inherently incompatible with Christianity, is because at its heart, at its philosophical heart, it says, it argues, that meeting the needs of the human person is possible through meeting their material wants and desires only. That can't be the truth, because we know from the truth of the human person that we are both material and spiritual. And that, again, you can find that anchored in the Gospels, in the Scriptures, the teachings of Jesus Christ, because he always healed, his first and foremost, the ills of the person spiritually, to be able so that they had the opportunity to once again go out and live life of virtues. Exactly right. I think it's important to note in, in, in the Synoptic Gospels, and I believe also in St. John, um, when, when Jesus talks about whether he is, in fact, the Messiah, or, or uh, when people ask him, are you the one, um, he asks them, well, you know, do you see what, what was, was pro- proclaimed? Do you see the, the, the blind being, being healed? Do you see the, the deaf hearing? Do you see the lepers cured? So you have those, those physical aspects, right? But then he says, do you see the good news preached to the poor? Right? It's, it's not a physical thing he's doing to the poor. He's preaching the good news to them. He's giving them the gospel. He's giving them the hope that is himself. He's bringing them forward outside of just the merely physical into that spiritual realm where he's providing for them in that very concrete, even though it's spiritual, but the very concrete need of the human person. Mm. A way of helping us once again to understand the common good is to go back to the fundamental teaching of the Catholic Church about the importance not only of the human person, but also of the family. Yes, very true. And and that's why I think maybe at this point it would be helpful to, to bring forth what does the Church say is the common good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the compendium borrows from that wonderful document from Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, um, that, which gives a very concrete, succinct definition. And, and this is paragraph 26 of Gaudium. It says, the, the common good is the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Mm-hmm. Let me say that again. The sum total of social conditions that allow people, as individuals or as groups, to meet their total fulfillment more fully and more easily. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> there's a lot packed into there. Mm-hmm. Um, more fundamentally, I think it's, it's important to say this. It's a sum total of, of social conditions. So we're including not just the laws of the land, um, but all kinds of other social conditions, the conditions of the family, right? the conditions of economics, sure, the conditions of culture, what sort of literature is being encouraged, what sort of music is, exists in society, the sum total, all of the social conditions. Right? So all the social conditions um, that allow uh, people as individual or as groups. Now, that's very important in this hyper-individualistic society of the West that we have. There's this sense that we constantly have to be working towards the needs of the individual. What the individual wants is the most important thing. Uh, When in reality, as we've said before, I think, the individual cannot reach fulfillment unless he exists in the community. Uh, The human species is the only species that requires training to reach our fulfillment, which requires other people. 
Okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, as an individual or as a group, to reach fulfillment, which I'll get to in a second, more fully and more easily. So it's not just that, hey, you can be fulfilled. Uh, it's the, the, the person's responsible for the common good need to make sure that you can reach your fulfillment more fully and more easily. Okay? Now, what's fulfillment? On a very natural level, everybody, Catholic and non-Catholic, atheist or believer, can understand what human fulfillment means or can come to some understanding of that, again, using the natural law. Mm-hmm. But as Catholics, as Christians, we have to understand fulfillment as meaning sanctity. That's what human fulfillment is. The, a saint is the most per- peoply people. So that's who saints are. Mm-hmm. They're the most fully human and most fully alive. And so the common good, therefore, is the sum total of social conditions that allow individuals and groups to become saints more fully and more easily. And that raises, of course, the question, well, are you saying, therefore, Omar, that every state has to be a Catholic state? No. I think that's the ideal, right? No, I, well, I wouldn't object. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, <laughs> and in fact, you know, the Holy Fathers say in, 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 uh, in Vatican II that the, the traditional teaching on declaration on, on religious liberty is, is still uh, you know, upheld. The ideal is still to have the confessional Catholic state. That's still the ideal, okay? However... It's not the only possible way of bringing about a society that allows us to become saints more fully and more easily. And we know that. Why? Because we have saints here in America, which is you know, certainly not a confessional Catholic state. We have had saints here in America who have become uh, uh, canonized. And so we know that s- sanctity is, in fact, possible here. In a concrete example, a state allows a law that what on the surface looks like a good because it gives someone freedom. Yeah. Say, for example, I have the freedom to look upon anything that's out there. Mm-hmm. I can access anything because I should be able to see what I want to see, i.e. pornography. Right. And you can't tell me I can't have this opportunity to view these things. And that would seem like it's a good, that particular quote-unquote freedom. Mm. However what that does to provide the pornography, how it affects the individual, how it has been even shown to be destructive within the hearts of families yeah. for those who are allowed to have that access. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is is an example of how that particular law that would allow that type of freedom is not necessarily an actual moral good. Right, exactly right. And when addressing then... All right, if the common good groups or individuals, then then who should come first? Like in that in the list of various groups or individuals to which we have to to serve, which group comes first? The first group is the family. Okay? Mm-hmm. That's the fundamental cell of society, not the individual, but the family. And you look at something like pornography, which statistics have shown have have torn families apart. And that's prescinding from the obvious fact that the the, the young women who are involved in it, you know, are themselves. You know, the life expectancy for a woman in pornography is something like 25 to 30 years lower than it is for women outside of pornography. Mm. I mean, and, and the labor things and all, all that. I mean, clearly this is harmful to individuals and to the common good. I mean, there's, there really can be no, – there's no debate about this. There really mm-hmm. shouldn't be. So here's something that, that's a clearly a great example of something that people will see is very important for maintaining the freedoms of, of the country. And in fact, 
there were articles a number of years ago saying that to remove pornography was the first thing the Nazis did, and so therefore that's a sign of some sort of totalitarian government is when you remove pornography, and that's the first step towards uh, uh, totalitarianism. Um, it may have been in that case, but but in reality, it is something that one can do for the sake of the common good. And this is where you know some of my libertarian friends and family actually um, uh, may may you know bristle. You know that the, that the state can come in and and determine uh, for individuals what their rights and freedoms are, etc. And this gets to the next question, which is all right. Well, then who's responsible for the common good? The first people who are responsible are you and me. You know, it's the common good because it's the common good. We're the ones who are responsible for it. We're the ones who bring it about. Mm-hmm. We're the ones who live it out. We're the ones who direct uh, the, the care and the, of society through our families and through our neighbors, neighbors. We're the ones who are primarily responsible for it. And in a democratic society, a Republican democratic society, we are the ones responsible for electing those who guide the common good. And so the responsibility of the state, therefore, towards the common good ends up being making sure that and maintaining the structures that allow the common good to take place. That's what the state is for, to, to bring out and to maintain the structures that allow for the human fulfillment uh, more fully and more easily. That's the role of the state. There will be those out there who will presume to think that the church wants to control the state, and that's not the case. From my understanding, Omar, it is the church's desire is to form the individuals who will then go on to become the leaders. That's very well said. That's perfect. Exactly right. Uh, The the church has no intention on telling the state what to do. Even, for instance, in in medieval times, although certainly there were all sorts of abuses, it was understood that the relationship with the king, for instance, was one where if the king were to be getting out of line, the the church would go to the king and say... You're sinning. <laughs> you need to go to confession. You may not go. There. Or, or in the case of St. Ambrose, for instance, with the Emperor Theodosius, who had slaughtered hundreds of innocent people in Greece over crime, St. Ambrose refused to allow the Emperor Theodosius to enter, even enter uh, the Basilica in Milan or, or receive communion until he made public reparation for this great sin. And it's not that the church is trying to tell the state what to do, but in the the care and the pastoral care for an individual soul, the state, the church can say, you know, you you may not therefore uh, receive communion for the sake of uh, of laying hold the, the holiness of of communion and, and and the things we believe in. Uh, apart from the you know the leaders of of the state, the church then goes on then to provide the, the sanctifying means for individual members of society to pursue. Uh, the good of society. And this is, I guess, one of my larger points in the whole social doctrine of the church is, is we get so caught up in social justice with, well, you know, changing the laws and changing the government and changing politics and changing this and the other thing. And we ignore entirely the fact that that change needs to happen within our hearts first and foremost. That change needs to happen before the tabernacle. That change needs to happen in mass, not just because we're there gathered as a community, although that's wonderful, but because we're there at the foot of the cross in front of a God who loved us so much to pour himself out to us and, and exemplify for us what true love looks like, to inform what justice will be, to inform what freedom is, to, to show us the truth of who we really are and can be. That's what the church does for us. And this is what Gaudium et Spes says in, in that, the chapter 4 of the first part, which was written, by the way, by Kara Wojtyla. 
the church provides us with the means to to bring Christ into our hearts so that we can bring him out into society, so we can bring the social transformation about. But first it has to start within us. The Great Cloud of Witnesses gives us many examples of those yeah. who have done just that, who have risen up to become leaders, whether by the means of monarchy, mm-hmm. for example, uh, St. Louis, yes. King Louis of France, yeah. or of uh, Elizabeth of Hungary uh, as a queen, but also uh, those who gave their lives in that leadership, whether it's Thomas Beckett mm. or Thomas More, mm-hmm. and standing up to, to speak out that truth. And you can cite example of example, example. Even those who may not have been lifted up to sainthood, like Alexei de Tocqueville, yeah. who came to the United States from France as a Catholic and trying to figure out why America why worked. Is it working here? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and there's so many of that. So for politicians today, there should be an alarm bell should go off, mm. and in particular, a Catholic's heart and mind when you hear someone say i am separating out that formation yes from what i need to do in serving the state exactly that should be major red flag. that's right major red flags look i mean even if you were to and i don't know if we've talked about this before but even if you were going to um to argue that there should be some separation between church and state here in the united states and that somehow that's in the constitution although there's plenty of debate for that but let's i'll give you that Assuming that there is nothing anywhere even implied in the Constitution or, you know, preambles thereof that suggests that somehow you have to separate your faith from your conscience. And we have politicians many, many times, rightly so, when they, when they vote for something against the wishes of their constituency, what's the phrase that they often use? I had to vote my conscience. I didn't do what my constituency wanted me to do because I had to vote my conscience. This was the right thing to do. This is the right thing for the country. And yet somehow, for some strange reason, when it comes to certain Catholic politicians, all of a sudden, no, I can't vote my conscience. I can't allow my faith to inform my conscience. I simply have to do what my constituents want. I can't possibly, I can't possibly impose my faith on others. I simply have to to do, as, as a representative, simply do what my people tell me to do. Well, you can't have it both ways, brothers and sisters. You, you simply can't. Mm-hmm. You vote your conscience. You allow your faith to inform your conscience, and if you're not allowing your faith to inform your conscience, you're not living up to the standards of Catholicism or really any religion that, or, or any ideology or, or any philosophy that would ask of you to allow that its truths to help inform the way you actually live your life. The ideal, then, is that those who are coming forward to be elected into an office and to serve in whatever way that they feel called, that when they come forward to those constituents, they say, this is the person who I am. This is how I am formed. This is the creed I profess. This is my personal credo, which is, by the way, something we proclaim every Sunday when we're at Mass. (laughs) Credo, I believe. (laughs) I believe. But this is who I am. And it's up to the electorate, that, that constituent body, to say, yes, we want you to represent us and to use your formation. And they know who they're getting when yeah. they vote for. So that's part of the problem, right, in, in today's world, which makes us so cynical. We're not quite sure who we're getting. No, and, 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 and uh, horrifyingly, we've been told a number of times that uh, who the person is that we're getting doesn't matter. 
How many times have we heard the phrase "character doesn't matter"? Character doesn't matter. Character doesn't matter. Or oh, it's just he just engaged in this activity. It doesn't really it doesn't really affect the way uh, mm-hmm. he he does uh, his business uh, um, uh, in in the White House or in, in Congress or in the State House or wherever it is that they are. Um, character, in fact, does matter. Uh, what the person does in their private life is hugely important. Uh, you, you know, for those of you who have ever studied Plato, you have that famous uh, uh, reference to the, the ring of Ganges, Ganges' ring. You know, if you had a ring you could put on, a la Jerry R. Tolkien, this is where he got it from, by the mm-hmm. way, if you could put in a ring that would make you disappear, right? And nobody would be able to see it, and you could steal and do whatever it is you wanted. When you put that ring on, what would you really do? That's the test of moral character that Plato puts forward. What would you do when nobody was looking? What would you really be able to do and you knew you could get away with it? That's the test of the moral character. And, and we have examples and after example after example of politicians who, not even with invisible rings, right, mm-hmm. but thinking they could get away with it, do terrible things, and yet somehow for some reason th- that doesn't matter or we don't care about that. It does matter. It matters hugely because that's the conscience that's forming how they interpret the common good. It matters because that's the person making decisions about what good is, what truth is, and how to apply that in law, which affects you, me, the, the child you hold in your arms, affects your grandmother across the street, it affects your neighbor who's trying to raise a family as well, it affects you at the gas pump, it affects you in the grocery store, it affects you in every single moment of your life. What that person is, how they perform in in matters of pressure, and when they think nobody's looking, that matters. It it is not something that is formed by our own personal conscience. It is not something that society determines. It is the, the sum total of social conditions that society helps bring about, right? But again, there's an objective goal here. The sum total of social conditions that allow for human fulfillment more fully and more easily. So we're directed at the good, right? The authentic, real, true good. In the coming episodes, Omar, we're going to be talking about principles within the context of this fifth point, those being universal destination of goods, subsidiarity, participation, and solidarity. Exactly. While the common good is, it's a complex topic. It is. It's a very complex topic. Understanding those other four points within this important understanding of formation, it will all come together. Right, and they're directed towards the common good. When you look at something like participation, we'll talk about later, you're participating toward what? The common good. Uh, Subsidiarity has to serve the common good. The universal destination of goods, right, is a way to help understand more fully the common good. So they, they direct all of them towards the common good, and that is that notion, especially for the Catholic, right, is that notion that the state should be set up in a way that allows us to become saints more fully and more easily. Mm, sounds like virtue. Yeah, virtue that's living. Right. That's right. It's a truth, freedom, justice, and love. Yeah, I mean, that's the, justice is one of those virtues. And, 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 and if you understand the virtues, which is why the Church's tradition on, on the cardinal virtues and theological virtues is so very important. Thank you, Omar. Thank you. You've been listening to Regnum Novum bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. 
This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.